This is a Chronicle podcast, bringing you ideas in the service of medicine. From the Chronicle podcast system, this is the NPC podcast of the National Pharmaceutical Congress for March 8, 2023. The NPC podcast is where we discuss and consider the purpose, process and people of the pharma industry, and today, we'll continue the healthcare conversation. This program is presented in cooperation with Impress, Canada's next-generation commercial partner. The industry is rapidly evolving, and Impress is designed to help you evolve with it. Learn more about Impress-tailored best-in-class solutions at www.impress.com. Today's guest is Eileen McMahon. She is partner, chair of intellectual property and food and drug regulatory practices at Tories LLP. And she will join your hosts, Jim, Mark, and Mitch. To start today's conversation, here's Mitch Shannon, CEO of Chronicle Companies. Welcome back to the NPC podcast from the National Pharmaceutical Congress. I'm your podcast co-host, Mitch Shannon, up here in our historic podcast, Gondola near the intersection of Lansdowne and Pape in Toronto. Our comrade James Shea, the general manager at Council for Continuing Pharmaceutical Education in Montreal, is not seated next to me as usual. In fact, he's nowhere to be seen. And just to add to the puzzle, someone seems to have left a large industrial wood chipper in Jim's place. So I'm left to ask the following question of Mark McElwain, the pharmaceutical industry consultant and life sciences expert. Mark, is Jim's absence in any way connected to the appearance of this wood chipper? It seems very odd, don't you think? That's good. Well, before people start thinking too much about Fargo, you might be relieved to hear that I got two or three emails from Shea down south this week. Now, of course, I guess those could have been sent by AI chatbots, so I don't know. Someone trying to throw us off the trail. I still say it's not normal. And for any of you listeners who may have seen Jim Shea or someone who looks like Jim Shea, just send us a clue regarding his whereabouts to health at chronicle.org. We'll make every effort to get him back here safe and sound. Further to which, we are your remaining podcast hosts, known as Mark and Mitch, because all the valuable brand names have already been trademarked by Tories LLP, and I include Messerschmitt Kabinenroller and MyBookie.com. So Mark, let's welcome our friend from the learned profession, Eileen McMahon. Eileen, come on in. Please be careful stepping around that wood chipper. (laughs) Thank you both very much for speaking with me today. Really looking forward to our conversation. So let's go. You are a partner and share of intellectual property and food and drug regulatory practices at Tories LLP in Toronto. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your firm and its current purpose? Of course. Tories is a law firm and we have offices in various cities of Canada, Toronto, Calgary, Montreal, Halifax, also in New York City. We do a lot of cross-border work, so different companies that need help with Canadian and U.S. legal issues. And I'd say we're known, Mitch, for enjoying difficult legal issues. As we'll likely get into in today's podcast, people rarely call lawyers when everything is going well. So they tend to call lawyers when their back is against the wall or it's a question where they need some comfort that they're taking the right path. And so that's what I'd say we're very good at. As you mentioned in your introduction, I lead the intellectual property 
and food and drug regulatory practices. Of course, the law firm has many other practices, corporate, tax, litigation, et cetera, but those are my two practice areas. Well, you referred to challenges, and that sets me up perfectly for the next question. Can you tell us about your experience regarding obtaining regulatory clearance for products? Yes. Well, regulated products are often products that carry some risk. So when we consider products that we buy every day, foods, drugs, medical devices, cosmetics, natural health products or dietary supplements, these are all products that are very tightly regulated by the federal government. Why? It's because there's a perceived level of risk with those products. And so the government, in some cases, won't allow manufacturers to sell them until they have a marketing authorization. So for example, a drug or a medical device, in most cases, can't be sold to Canadians without a regulatory approval. Not so foods. So foods are, are different, even though, of course, we ingest foods and there's a high risk if the food is contaminated, adulterated, or is not compliant with standards. But in that case, the government says, we will set out a list of requirements for foods in the food and drug regulations, and we expect companies to comply. All of these types of products regulated have certain standards that companies have to meet. So that's generally what we're referring to when we talk about regulated products. Eileen, it's Mark. I wonder if you could please tell us how you help life sciences clients identify their intellectual property assets and the value they bring to their businesses. Yes, I think the question mark can be answered differently depending on the type of company that we're speaking about. So let's take a very sophisticated company, a company that's been in business for some time. They're well capitalized. Many times they will have a legal department and quite often they will have intellectual property counsel within their legal department. For those types of companies, the head of intellectual property is usually very astute and know the assets they have in the intellectual property space. Usually it's going to be the word or logo, which is a trademark. There can be innovation in the form of patents, and that's a type of IP, domain names. And so there can be a whole suite and generally, the person within the legal department leading the IP will have a good grasp on that. What happens a lot, Mark, is that we're approached by a small startup. And in the space, oftentimes, these are called small and medium-sized enterprises or SMEs. And I find that our work with those companies incredibly enjoyable and rewarding. Why? Because you're helping them think from the get-go about their intellectual property, what their assets might be, value creation. And so that's a really incredibly important piece of the company's evolution and something that I really enjoy doing. So one of the first questions I'll ask is budget. As you may know, in an IP world, we can blow a lot of money on IP. And that's not good business sense for an SME, generally speaking, because if their budget for intellectual property in the first year, for example, is 25000 
Well, we want to be very judicious about how we're spending that, if at all, maybe too early to even consider IPs. So my first point in speaking with founders and SMEs is, what is our budget? The second point that I'd like to speak with them about is the business plan. I want to understand what their business plan is so that the IP strategy dovetails with that business plan. So it could be that they have their sites in North America only and aren't necessarily interested in other markets. And that may have an impact on where they file or whether they outlicense their IP in other markets. So from my perspective, it's very important to have a close relationship between the IP strategy and the business strategy. And then one other point that I would add is that there are two aspects to any intellectual property strategy that I urge SMEs to consider. The first is inward looking. So in other words, if we look at our R&D, if we look at what we are doing as a company, what do we need to protect to improve our assets? The second aspect is the outward looking strategy. So in other words, if I look at other companies in my space, other labs, other researchers, what are they doing? What are they filing on? And are they filing on something that's going to block my market access? Are they filing on something that I need to challenge because it's going to block my market access? So those are some of the topics that you address with an SME, for example, in formulating their IP strategy. Big companies that are generally successful have really nailed that because usually they have a highly sophisticated IP counsel in-house who's helping to lead that strategy. That's good. And what I'm hearing is a real partnership there. Now, let's drill down a little bit on market access, market exclusivity. Can you share some ways you assist clients in obtaining and maintaining market exclusivity for their products? Yes. And so there are two buckets that I'd like to address when we speak about market exclusivity. The first bucket is going to be regulatory. Why regulatory? Well, regulatory in itself is a hurdle. And we saw this, I'll just use cannabis as an example. When cannabis was legalized in Canada, the license to sell cannabis, just the paper copy of the license was valued in the millions. That's a regulatory asset. That's a company that didn't necessarily have operations or sales or anything. Just that license was a regulatory asset. Similarly, in the pharma space and the medical device space, having that marketing authorization is the regulatory asset in many cases. So one of the aspects is what is our regulatory asset? Part of that can also be considering data protection. So in the pharmaceutical space, you can get data protection if you're the first company to sell and get an authorization for a drug in Canada. Has a company considered that as part of its market exclusivity? We also have what's called the PMNOC register, which is Canada's version of the Orange Book, where you can list patents at Health Canada, and that can result in Health Canada not approving your competitor's product if they refer directly or indirectly to your data. So that's another type of 
exclusivity that is really in the regulatory bucket. So all of those regulatory exclusivities can be very helpful. They're completely legal and they help you to create and maintain market share because they make it a little more difficult for another person to come into the market. That's the first bucket. Second bucket is intellectual property. And by intellectual property, we mean the domain name. We mean the logo, the brand Viagra, for example, very famous brand in the pharma space. We mean patents. We mean copyright that's on your product monograph, your patient support materials. So all of that is intellectual property. You claim that intellectual property. And so what good does that do you? Well, if somebody comes along and wants to copy your active, or if they want to take the look and feel of your branding material, you arguably have a claim against that company because they are infringing your intellectual property rights. And so that's a type of market exclusivity in my area. But of course, you can have contracts. So in a contract, I could say to Mitch, I want to be the exclusive person selling you this product for 10 years. And so by contract, I'm creating exclusivity. Is it legal? Absolutely. So you can create legal ways to have market exclusivity. But of course, the Competition Bureau always is keeping an eye on what you're doing. They want competition. Competition is good. So there are certain things that are illegal, like, for example, Mitch and I agreeing on a price that we're going to put in separately in bids to hospitals for certain drugs. That's illegal, right? And so there's this tension always between creating and maintaining market exclusivity, but doing it in a fully compliant way. So let's continue to make this a little bit more tangible. And I wonder if you can give us an example of a particularly challenging case that you worked on, you know, for instance, in obtaining a regulatory clearance or protecting IP rights or whatever you're comfortable in talking about. Yes. Well, I love this area. And as I mentioned at the outside of the podcast, rarely, you know, once in a while, Mitch might do this, but rarely does someone call and say, everything is going so great. And it's so great to speak with you. <laughs> That's it. You know, usually when you call a lawyer, and I already, since being on this podcast, have two emails with urgent exclamation marks, right? And this is how we roll. People reach out to us when their back is against the wall. They need help. Many times their gut reaction, they know what the answer is, but they just want some comfort. So in the regulatory arena in particular, where we might get involved, many times companies have terrific regulatory departments, people who know what they're doing day to day, they do them an impeccable job, but something goes sideways. The regulatory approval is not coming through when it's supposed to be coming through, or Health Canada is putting up some roadblocks saying, we have concerns about the safety of this product, even though it's approved in the United States and Europe. In a case like that, we're often brought in to strategize and help. Rarely in a Health Canada matter does the lawyer lead your team. Health Canada doesn't want to hear from the lawyers, but we're in the background advising you on how to prepare for that call, 
how to address the difficult issues because it's all advocacy. And it's amazing the number of times people might not be aware that they've got to clarify how much time do I have on this call? What is my most important point? And I need to start with that. I need to ensure that they understand what I'm saying before I leave that point. And I should not close the meeting without getting my ask that I want for this meeting. Many times people will forget some of the basic points of advocacy. So our role many times is speaking a bit about the law, but most times helping them with those difficult situations. And Mark, there are many others where, for example, the regulator will say, this product, stop sale order. We're going to send out a press release tonight, stop sale order. And the client will say, well, wait a minute, this product is approved in the United States and Europe and all these other countries. If Health Canada issues this stop sale order, there's going to be a ripple effect worldwide. And also, why is Health Canada going off on its own on this issue? And so that would be a type of question that we get involved in, stop import orders. It's usually the really tough issues where you need some legal advice and some help trying to get you to the finish line. We're chatting with Eileen McMahon Esquire about the drug business and the legal system here on the NPC podcast. So Eileen, in your experience, uh, what are some common mistakes that companies make when it comes to IP protection and regulatory clearance? We spoke about that a little bit, Mitch, earlier in the podcast. I would say one common mistake is budget. So in the area of drug regulation and IP, the IP costs are exponential. So you start off filing a patent application and it may cost 15 or 20,000 to file it at the US patent office. But if you draw out an x-axis, you are going to see an exponential curve where that 20,000 over the course of 2 to 3 years becomes 150,000. And if you file multiple patent applications, your costs can quickly mount to a million dollars in patent expenses. And so from my perspective, one very important issue is budget and strategy. Where are we going with this IP program? And where are we going in terms of filings, for example, China or filings in Japan? Is it part of your business strategy to enter those markets? If not, line up a partner who will carry those costs for you and give you some revenue as you leverage your IP. And so that would be something that would be a pretty common mistake. I think another common mistake is where the IP team does not speak with the business team. So IP teams, this is a gross characterization, but I would say generally we tend to be introverts. Why? You're often dealing with PhDs, engineers, and lawyers. So that culminates in a very introverted personality set. A personality that's very comfortable working on a patent application in your silo and getting a patent that you're very proud of. Well, from my perspective, that's great. I leave the IP team, but my job is to make sure that that asset is dovetailing with what the executive suite and what the board of directors wants in terms of an asset. And that means speaking regularly with the business team to say, this is what this document means. You know, to muscle through by reading a patent, it's a gruesome job because it's often 150 pages. You don't know what the patent means. 
And so the job of the IP attorney is to say, this is what it means, and this is what it's giving you. Does that help you in your business strategy? And so just to come back to this being a mistake, a mistake that I see periodically is where people are working in silos and not communicating. And by communicating, I think it results in a much more effective IP strategy for a company. Eileen, let's shift gears a bit and talk about direct-to-consumer advertising of prescription drugs. Still restricted by Health Canada, but we're seeing more of it lately, carefully avoiding the barriers. Would you like to comment about whether those restrictions can last much longer? The rules seem to be bending, but will they break? That's a great question. So just as a reminder to our listeners, this restriction on direct-to-consumer advertising of prescription drugs in Canada, it's a legal restriction. So it's not a policy that the regulator has created. It's right in the food and drug regulations, which is a criminal statute, by the way. So it says there that no person shall advertise a prescription drug to the general public except by name, price, or quantity, generally speaking. And so that's the prohibition. And for us to change that as Canadians, we would need to convince the federal government that the food and drug regulations require a change. So that's one option. That's one option where a number of people would approach the government and say, time for a change. We're close to the U.S. border. They allow direct-to-consumer advertising of prescription drugs. We get spillover to advertising. Time to change. However, it's not without huge controversy. Why? Many in the medical profession in Canada believe in the learned intermediary rule. What is the learned intermediary rule? It's where I go to my physician, we conclude that I have a certain disease, and then the physician, who is the learned intermediary, gathers all the information on the available options, treatments, risks, and then gets my informed consent as to which drug is the right one for me. So the physician, in the judicious manner of a physician, is considering the data, forming a recommendation, and taking the patient through that. Many physicians in Canada consider that to be a critical part of the physician-consumer relationship. So the challenge I think we would have is in convincing physicians that we need to change in Canada. From various articles I've read in medical journals, et cetera, I'm not entirely convinced that the physician bar is there yet, but it would be interesting to see from the head of the Canadian Medical Association if they are. There are definitely workarounds. So what do I mean by workarounds? Well, we've already spoken about U.S. advertising And we know that that spills over into Canada. The other workaround is famous brands. And Viagra is one. Azempic is starting to become another. I know my friends are saying, what is this Azempic? And then there's a discussion. So that's a fully compliant ad. Why? Because all they're doing is mentioning the brand. And it's becoming so famous that it's known. So that's a workaround for famous brands. But there's also a workaround if a script has been written. So what do I mean by that? Well, if a script has been written, the thinking goes, the physician and the patient have already discussed the different treatments available, the pros and cons of each. The script has been written. 
now that the patient is on that particular medication, it's fine to transmit information to that patient as part of patient education, as part of information about the drug, et cetera. And so that by many quarters is regarded as not advertising because the script has been written. So still a work in progress, I think, Mark. And I think consumers certainly would like the power to learn more, but I think there may be some resistance by the bar of the physicians. We ask all our guests the question about education. You were through law school, of course, but your undergraduate degree was in chemistry and biochemistry. So how did that first degree affect the course of your career? Actually, quite a bit when I reflect back on it. I started off at U of T, and as you may know, chemistry, biochemistry, physics, you do a fair bit of lab work. And I quickly realized that I was really good, anything on paper, any type of a puzzle, formula, I excelled at, frankly, but at the bench, I was a disaster. So, you know, I would often get marks in the 60s at the bench, and then I would have to shore it up with my written exams in the 90s so that I would try to get decent marks, generally speaking. And some of the professors would remark, you must be a disaster in the kitchen because your lab technique is so bad. I would turn the temperature up high to get the experiment to finish more quickly. And which is to say, it's great to take different degrees and different paths because it teaches you a lot about yourself. The other thing I learned from my lab work is that I did not enjoy the isolation of research practice. So I am not an introvert. I very much enjoy interacting with people. I get energized by it. And so that helped me realize that I likely needed a path that was a little different. So what did I do? I decided to try dentistry and I wrote a chalk test that I scored one out of nine on because my dexterity was so poor. Even though I had taken the piano and I was in grade 10 piano, they concluded that my dexterity wasn't sufficient. They've since also realized that there's very little correlation between the results of that chalk test and your effectiveness as a dentist. So that after that result, I took a complete left turn, tried out law, loved it, and wanted to leverage the science math background. And so that's why I eventually pursued intellectual property. So kind of a long about way, Mark, but I'm so grateful that I studied science and math. Grateful that I was a woman, a handful of women in those types of courses. And I have really enjoyed being able to leverage that education in an indirect way by what I do every day. Great, great path. From a shaky start in the uh, STEM area, you were inducted into the Canadian Healthcare Marketing Hall of Fame this year. Yes. Tell us a bit more about the award and what it meant to you. Well, first, I was so touched that Chronicles and Pangea had given this award to me. I was just so incredibly touched. And I think that the reason I was so touched is oftentimes when you get an award that's meaningful, and I don't actually receive many awards that are meaningful. You know, sometimes you'll get listed in directories, et cetera, and that's great. But this award was particularly meaningful to me. And I think the reason for that was because I reflected on my story. My parents 
were immigrants to Canada from Ireland. They pushed education. My mom died when I was a teenager. My dad was an alcoholic. And it was a tough, tough road. Although at the time, I didn't really realize it. All I knew was that I had to get good marks because that was the only game in town. And so I worked really hard and went through a lot of challenges and along the way had immense joy. I met my now husband. He's been my husband for decades, a week after my mom died. So I was a high school student and I met Mark and he's been such a rock to me over the years. I've had some children during the course of my career and they are a joy to me. And so I think these awards can be meaningful. And to me, this was especially meaningful because it reflected on my journey. And many times I don't reflect. I just go, go, go. And I was just so grateful to receive it, so touched by receiving it. And I'm very grateful to you for giving it to me. Phew, that that is uh, some answer. Here's Mark to uh, bring us home. So as we wind down the podcast, we invite you to play our word association game. So just go ahead and say the first thing that comes to mind in response to each of the following phrases or words. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, here we go. Intellectual property. Innovation. Trademark. Google. Cross-border. U.S.-Canada. Regulatory clearance. Health Canada. And market exclusivity. Patent cliff. So finally, it's time to put on your soothsayer's hat and enter our prognostication corner. So what bold predictions would you make about the life sciences industry during the next 12 to 24 months? Well, what an exciting industry to be in, right? I mean, we are coming into a recession and we have, by all accounts, are starting to hit that recession. But we've also come through a time as a country, as many countries of the world that have been incredibly challenging with COVID. And frankly, life sciences should be the darling of all people for coming up with multiple vaccines in such short order when people said it couldn't be done. So I have a sense of optimism because to me, there's innovation. There are new gene therapies on the horizon. We have many orphan diseases that people are saying they have found something that can help to move the dial. So I think we're going to continue to see those types of innovations that give me so much hope. We have an aging population, as we all know. So what does that mean? Well, what is that going to mean in terms of services, in terms of products? We've seen how effective telemedicine can be, and I can only imagine that that's going to accelerate in more ways where people are saying, well, can I call Canadians from Florida and treat them with medicines that are available in Florida and ship them up to Canada? I think we're going to see more of that. And I think we're also going to see the continued challenge regarding Health Canada approvals compared to reimbursement. So we often get the question, well, wait a minute, if this drug was sufficient on safety and efficacy for Health Canada, why is CADIS not agreeing to at least a partial reimbursement? And so those types of challenges about who's going to pay, 
So great industry to work in and just so thrilling that every day we come into the office and it's a new issue that might be on our plate. Well, that's the dirty little secret of our business. It's fun. It's exciting. And Eileen, it's always fun to spend some time around you. You've been a great ally to our industry and beyond that, a valued friend of the industry. So please know that you're appreciated. Oh, that's very kind, Mitch. And I'm very grateful to you and Mark for spending time with me today. It's been so enjoyable for me, and I always look forward to our discussions. And to our listeners, if any of you happen to see Jim Shea, please ask him to get in touch with us regarding this puzzling wood chipper. Otherwise, we'll speak to you all again next week. If you have comments or questions for Eileen, get in touch through an email to health at chronicle.org. What do you think about today's conversation? Let us know by attaching your comments as a voice clip and you might just become part of a future episode. We do hope you enjoyed today's NPC podcast. If you did, please like it, rate it, recommend it, and make a point of sharing it with your network. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, or, to keep things simple, just ask your smart device to play the National Pharmaceutical Congress podcast on Audible, or TuneIn Radio, or Spotify, or Apple iTunes. The NPC podcast is presented in cooperation with Impress, Canada's next-generation commercial partner. Check them out at www.impress.com. I'm your announcer, Leona Void, counting down the days to St. Patrick's Day. This podcast was produced by Jeremy Visser, and he received valuable help from Amy Elder and Spencer Eng. Research for this program came from Kylie Rebenick. The musical theme is performed with thinly controlled emotion by the NPC Podcast Orchestra, under the direction of Maestro Sinjin Milbrook. We'll speak again next week.